So that's Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 36. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their, forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake... They saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three, three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered, covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Well, there are lots of different views in our world today about who Jesus really is. A few years ago, I remember meeting a guy on Oak Lawn down at UWA uh, who was convinced that Jesus is a myth. That Jesus didn't really exist at all and was just made up later. Now, I've got to say, it's a pretty uncommon view, but it's a view that's out there. Jesus is a myth. There are other opinions about Jesus too. I've met a lot of people who think that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Nice guy, pretty chill, told people to love their neighbor and stuff. That's about it. I've met others who think he was a prophet, that he was a messenger sent from God who then prepared the way for a later and greater prophet named Muhammad. Uh, Muslims don't believe that Jesus died on the cross or anything like that, uh, but they do esteem him as a prophet from God. So there are a wide variety of opinions about Jesus out there. Myth, moral teacher, prophet, you could add your own. So if Jesus rocked up here in Perth and asked, imagine he rocked up to your workplace or your campus and asked, who do people say I am? Well, what kind of answers would you give him that you would hear around you? 
You know, actually, that's not too different to how things were 2,000 years ago. It's not just today that there are different opinions about him. Jesus was a controversial figure even while he walked the earth. A lot of people had different opinions about who he was. But, you know, I reckon the key question is how would Jesus himself answer the question of who he is? Who did Jesus understand himself to be? Did he understand himself as a good moral teacher, a prophet, or something else? Well, today, as we look at Luke 9, that's exactly what Jesus tells us. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, uh, let's have a look together at Luke 9, where we see Jesus tell us about three things. Uh, His identity, that's who he is. His mission, why he came. And his call, how he calls us and what it means to follow after him. So first up, Jesus' identity. Uh, Have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 9, verses 18 to 21. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Uh, So here we can see, can't we, that even back then there were different opinions about Jesus. Some thought he was John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some thought he's one of the other prophets from long ago. But Jesus asked his disciples, not just the crowds who knew Jesus from a distance, Jesus asked his closest disciples who knew him intimately, who do you guys think I am? You know me best. And Peter answers, you are God's Messiah. Now, I've got to ask, what did Peter have in mind when he called Jesus the Messiah? Uh, What does that word Messiah actually mean? Uh, Well, the word Messiah is the English version uh, of the Hebrew word uh, Mashiach, which literally means uh, anointed one. And it's helpful to know that uh, the the word Christ uh, is just the English version of the Greek word Christos, which means exactly the same thing. Messiah, Christ, same deal. Both simply mean anointed one. And this word word held a huge amount of significance in Jesus' day. If you were a first century Jew, it was a loaded term. Because back in the Old Testament, the anointed one referred to the king. Uh, We're seeing this in our hub groups uh, in 1 Samuel this semester. uh, that As part of their inauguration, the kings of Israel were anointed with oil. Happened to Saul, happened to David. And so all of these guys were anointed. They were anointed ones. They were literally messiahs, kings. But the Old Testament promised that just as there were many messiahs in the Old Testament, kings of Israel, God would one day send the Messiah, a greater king than any who had come before, to save his people. You can see this, for example, in Psalm 2, uh, which was written about a thousand years before Jesus, at a time when God's people Israel was surrounded by hostile nations. Now, I've had to get the text fairly small to get it up there, so if your eyesight isn't great, you may want to flip to Psalm 2 uh, so that you can see it in context, because we'll spend a few moments here. Um, But if you can see it, Psalm 2, verse 1, it says, "'Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain?' The kings of the earth, these other nations, rise up and their rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their shackles. Okay, so who are the hostile nations rising up against? Well, they're rising up against the Lord, that's God, and against his anointed one, 
God's anointed king, the king of Israel. And how does God respond? Is, is he worried? Is he scared? Well, no. Verse 4 says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So God doesn't feel threatened. It's laughable, like when, when a toddler tries to come wrestle you and knock you over. He says he's installed his king on Zion, which is the name of the mountain on which the city of Jerusalem was built, the capital of Israel. And check out what God says to his anointed king from verse 7. I'll proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, the king says, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Now notice here that God calls this anointed king his son, the son of God. And he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. So this anointed king is going to save God's people, but how is he going to do it? By crushing their enemies with a rod of iron. He's going to dash them to pieces like, like shards of pottery. It's kind of like, you know, uh, you, can, you, you can go to these rooms where you pay to just like break stuff and throw uh, plates against the wall and everything's just shattering to pieces. That's the kind of picture. It's a pretty violent image, isn't it? Dash them like pottery. So think about the kind of picture that this is painting about what God's Messiah is like. Ruling, defeating, conquering. So in light of that, can you see how loaded it is when Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one? This is God's victorious king who will defeat the hostile nations and, and bring judgment as well as salvation. This is no small claim. And we've got to understand this was a very live issue in Jesus' day. Because if you know your history, you'll know that Jesus' people, the Jews, were living under the boots of the Roman Empire. In 63 BC, uh, the Roman general Pompey, uh, a contemporary of Julius Caesar, brought Israel under Roman rule. He crushed them. They were nothing against him. He absolutely dominated them. The kings of the earth had risen up against God's people. If that was in 63 BC, then it's been decades, hasn't it, of Jesus and God's people suffering under the heavy yoke of Roman oppression, longing, waiting for the promised king who would defeat their enemies and save God's people. So can you imagine how, in light of all of that, how explosive it would be for Peter to realize that Jesus is God's Messiah? You know, so, so often we read backwards, we just think, oh yeah, some religious guy, no big deal. But this had huge implications. No wonder Jesus wanted to keep it quiet from now. Verse 21, he says, not to tell people yet. Because as soon as word gets out that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, things are going to escalate very quickly. And Jesus wants that to happen at just the right time. So that's Jesus' identity. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, God's chosen king, who will save his people from their enemies. But what is his mission, his purpose? Uh, what does he come to do? We'll have a look in your Bibles with me at verse 22, where Jesus tells us. Verse 22, and he said, The Son of Man, that's Jesus referring to himself, 
the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, here Jesus says that his mission, his purpose, is to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. Now, it's easy for us today to gloss over that and think, well, yeah, obviously Jesus had to die. Isn't that kind of the point? But if you think about it, this would have been utterly shocking to Jesus' disciples. Remember that for centuries, uh, based on places like Psalm 2, they were expecting a victorious and powerful Messiah who would defeat their enemies, not be killed by them. I mean, how is that help to anyone? They thought Jesus would conquer the Romans, not be crucified by them. And this is crucial for us to get our heads around because we're so familiar with the idea of Jesus' death that we often miss just how scandalous it is. No one was expecting the Messiah to come and die. But so what does that mean then? Did Jesus fall short of people's expectations? Was he a kind of subpar uh, Messiah? You know, the kind, of, the kind of Messiah that you might buy on one of those online, um, you know, e-commerce sites and the picture looks great, but then it arrives and it's kind of just not up to scratch? No, Jesus... Jesus didn't fall short of people's expectations as Messiah. He far exceeded them. Yes, he's God's anointed king who will save God's people from their enemies, but the enemies Jesus defeated are far bigger than just the hostile nations. Jesus defeated the enemies of sin and death, not just our earthly enemies, but our eternal enemies. And Jesus dying is actually essential to that mission. If the mission was defeat uh, the Roman Empire and the oppressive systems of this world, then Jesus' death was an absolute failure. But if the goal, if the mission was to save us from sin and death, then Jesus dying was essential. Jesus willingly gave up his life on the cross. And when he did so, he bore the sins of the world in himself. Uh, The penalty that we deserve for our rebellion against God, for ignoring Him, for wanting to do things our own way, He took that penalty, that death penalty, in Himself. And three days later, when He rose from the dead, He conquered death once and for all. He paid the price. And then He overcame death so that all who trust in Him will also conquer death, will also be raised to life with new bodies just like Him. Jesus was defeating our far greater enemy. As Hebrews 2, 14 to 15 puts it, Since God's children have flesh and blood, uh, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery to sin and death. That was Jesus' mission as Messiah. That was why he came, to die for us and save us from our greatest enemies. And he achieved that mission through his death on the cross and by rising from the dead three days later, which crucially Jesus is predicting here in Luke 9, long before it happens. He's saying, this is what I've come to do. Okay, so we've seen Jesus' identity. He's the Messiah, God's victorious king. We've seen Jesus' mission. He came to die and rise again to defeat sin and death. And finally, let's look at Jesus' call. 
What does Jesus call us to do in response to him? Now have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. That is Jesus' call in a nutshell. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But what does that actually mean? Well, to deny yourself means to say no to yourself. It means to say no to living your own way, the way that's comfortable, the way that's easy, the way that you want to run your life with you in control. And instead of that, saying no to, I'm going to run my own life, he instead calls us to take up our cross and follow him. So there's a fundamental shift. Instead of following my own desires, I'm following Jesus. It doesn't mean you just kind of tack on a bit of spirituality to your life, but otherwise run it the same. It's a fundamental shift in who's in control of your life. Instead of me being in control, Jesus is. And specifically, that involves taking up our cross. Now, we've got to be careful here. Sometimes this language of, you know, my cross to bear uh, is trivialized to mean any hardship that I might face in life. You know, oh, my in-laws are really annoying, hypothetically, uh, but that's just my cross to bear, people might say. Got to be careful who's listening to this recording. Uh, But that's not what it's talking about. If you were to sum it up in a nutshell, it means uh, to surrender control of our lives to Jesus and to follow him in the path of self-sacrificial love for others. Because, of course, that's why Jesus took up his cross, as we've just seen. That's why he went and died. He didn't go because suffering is somehow holy or good in and of itself. No, he went out of self-sacrificial love to seek our good, to do what is best for us. That's what love is even at great cost to himself. Jesus, uh, A, in his death, is achieving something for us that we could never achieve and that we're not being called to achieve. None of us are being called to save anyone else. But Jesus is, in saving us, giving us a model that we should follow to live lives of self-sacrificial love for others, just as he has done for us. So that's taking up our cross daily, Uh, and following Jesus, denying self. But you might be wondering, well, what does this actually look like in practice? And the answer on one level is, there are literally just thousands of examples of what it could like in so many different ways. Uh, But let me just share some recent examples where I've seen this in action that come to mind. Um, One obvious one is this last week, as we've mentioned, was was Spy Mania, our church's kids' holiday program. And I've got to say, I was so encouraged to see a team of over a hundred volunteers, both uni churches and people from other congregations, giving up their time to share the gospel. You know, some people took time off uni at a really busy time of semester and are now having to play catch up. Uh, Some people even took time off work in order to be there. And it's not just this one year uh, that it happened, although it was really encouraging to see it happen this year, people at cost to themselves doing what's loving for others. Uh, There are a whole bunch of uni churches on our kids' team and on our youth teams uh, who who every school term week of the year give up their Sunday mornings, their Friday nights. I can guarantee you there are a lot of times where they'd rather just sleep in on a Sunday or they get home from work or uni on a Friday 
and they'd rather just have an early night in or go out with friends. And yet, they say no to what they'd rather do. They say no to comfort and they say no to self. And they do something but small, but concrete and profound to self-sacrificially love the other, to tell those kids and those youth about Jesus. That might seem small on one level, but that's a concrete example of Luke 9.23 in action. Saying no to self and following Jesus in the path of self-sacrificial love for others. But of course, it's not just these formal ways of serving. It could be the daily decisions we make of choosing between serving self and serving others. It could be in situations where we are faced with our housemates, where we'd rather do the comfortable thing and no one, maybe no one would even notice. But we choose in that moment to go out of our way to do something to love and bless them. If you've ever had a housemate, you know that that's a very hard thing to do. It could be choosing to have an uncomfortable conversation with a friend out of love, even when we'd rather stay quiet because it's a bit awkward to talk about. It could be choosing to say no to a relationship with a person we're attracted to because we know they wouldn't help us grow in our walk with Jesus. I've seen an example of that happen in the last couple of weeks and I was so encouraged by it. It's a big thing to do. Some of these examples are big, some of them are small, but they're all examples of Luke 9, 23 in action of what it can look like to concretely deny ourselves and follow Jesus in the path of self-sacrificial love for others. So I wonder, those are just a few examples, but what could it look like for you this week to do that? To deny self, to say no to what's comfortable or easy. What could it look like for you to follow Jesus' example? Could be something small, could be something big. Uh, For those of us tonight who are Christians, we've got to ask ourselves, is Luke 9.23 an accurate description of my life? Because notice that Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple. Uh, These are the basics of discipleship. This is Christianity 101. This isn't like, oh, if I'm really dedicated one day, maybe I'll do this. This is a daily thing that's at the bedrock of what it means to follow Jesus. So I've got to ask myself, have I actually surrendered control of my life to Jesus? Not just in the past, but am I continuing to do that daily? Or if I'm honest, am I actually saying yes to self far more often? I've got to ask myself, we've all got to ask ourselves, am I still functionally, maybe I'm a Christian and I go to church, but am I functionally in the driver's seat of my life rather than Jesus? Am I allowing my own comfort and interest to govern how I spend my time, my money, my decisions? Are there areas of my life where I'm like, yeah, I'll be a Christian, but I'm going to keep saying yes to self and sin in this area. But maybe no one else will know about it. Maybe there's even a specific area of your life that comes to mind as I ask those questions. If so, that's a great thing to bring to God in prayer. To repent and say, God, I want your help to let go of this thing and surrender control to Jesus, to freely receive the grace and mercy that comes through his death in our place, and then surrender control and actually start to follow him in that area of our lives. You know, a lot of uni churches are in one-to-ones, where people catch up one-to-one to to read the Bible. It's a great thing. 
Um, if that's you, maybe this is something you could chat about in your one-to-one this week. Just maybe take a break from whatever book of the Bible you're reading through. Simply read Luke 9.23, and, and maybe the context as well would be helpful. And just reflect on that one thing together. What could that look like for it to more uh, profoundly shape your life than it currently is? Because we've got to notice, uh, notice what's happening. Uh, the context is very important. Notice what happens in verse 27. Uh, so a few verses down, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Luke then records in the very next verse that just a few short days later, three of the apostles, Peter, John, and James, are with Jesus on a mountain when his appearance is changed. He becomes as bright as a flash of lightning, uh, an event we now refer to as the transfiguration. And so some of those with Jesus saw a taste of the kingdom of God come in power, just like he says in Luke 9.27. They saw a glimpse of Jesus in his glory as he truly is. And the climax of this section comes in Luke 9.35, which says, A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. God speaks from heaven, similar to how he did at Jesus' baptism back in Luke 3. But the difference here is that God adds a command that wasn't there in Luke 3. What's the command? Listen to him. God's saying it is not enough simply to have the right beliefs about Jesus. We actually have to listen to him, to obey him, to obey his call in our lives. And so when we see Jesus' call in Luke 9.23, we have to ask ourselves, am I actually listening to him and living the way he calls me to? If you're anything like me, that's a challenging question. And there's grace for that in all the ways that we fall short, but also a great reminder to come back to him and keep submitting our lives to him daily. It's not enough simply to have the right beliefs. We need to put our faith into action. But let's be honest, there's no doubt what Jesus is describing in Luke 9.23 is not easy. Denying ourselves and following Jesus is hard. It means giving up the lives we might want for ourselves. It means giving up the dreams and ambitions for self-actualization that this world tells us to pursue. That's hard. But in verses 24 to 26, Jesus shows us that it's worth it. He motivates us. He persuades us why it's worth it to deny ourselves and follow him. Have a look in your Bibles with me from verse 24. This is right after the call to deny ourselves. Jesus says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words... The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. What does Jesus say in verses 24 to 25? Lose your life for him now because suffering is good? Because suffering is somehow better? No. Lose your life for Jesus now and you will gain true life for eternity to come. Whoever loses their life for Jesus will find it, will find true life. Jesus is saying that saying no to self in the short term now is actually saying yes to your lasting and eternal good. 
It's hard, but Jesus says it is worth it. Uh, Some of you may have heard of a guy named Jim Elliott. Uh, Jim was a missionary who was 28 years old when, along with four others, he was killed in a remote part of the Amazon jungle in Ecuador. Uh, The five of them had been trying to take the gospel uh, to a previously unreached tribe called the Waranis, who had a reputation for being hostile. These young men knew it was extremely risky, so they were very careful. Uh, And they managed to do what no one had done before. They had months of positive contact, communication, and exchanging of gifts between uh, them and the tribe. Until one day, seemingly out of nowhere, a few of the Warani men had a change of heart and speared them to death. It made news headlines at the time, and many saw it as a waste. These five young men were in the prime of their lives, with so much ahead of them. They left behind five wives and nine young children. Elizabeth Elliot was one of those wives, and she later recounted about how they knew the risks involved. She writes, "Uh, The other wives and I talked one night about the possibility of becoming widows. This was a few weeks before the attack. What would we do? God gave us peace of heart and confidence that whatever might happen, his word would hold. Each of us knew that when we married our husbands, that there would never be any question about who came first. God and his work held first place in each of our lives. It was the condition of true discipleship, Luke 9.23. It became devastatingly meaningful now. It was a time for soul searching, a time for counting the possible cost. Was it the thrill of adventure that drew our husbands on? No, their letters and journals made abundantly clear that these men did not go out as some men go out to shoot a lion or climb a mountain. Their compulsion was from a different source. Each had made a personal transaction with God, recognizing that he belonged to God, first of all by creation, and secondly through redemption by the death of his son, Jesus Christ. This double claim on his life settled once and for all the question of allegiance. To these men, Jesus Christ was God and had taken upon himself human form in order that he might die and by his death provide not only escape from the punishment their sin merited, but also a new kind of life, eternal, both in length and in quality. This meant simply that Christ was to be obeyed and more than that, that he would provide the power to obey. The point of decision had been reached. God's command, go and preach the gospel to every creature, was the categorical imperative. The question of personal safety was wholly irrelevant. You see, these uh, five young men lost their lives for Jesus and the gospel. And yes, they denied themselves and followed Jesus in the path of self-sacrificial love for others. And yes, the cost was great, not only for them, but for their wives and for their families. But according to them, yes, the cost was great, but it was worth it. Seven years before he died, while he was still in university, Jim Elliot wrote these words in his journal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, we cannot keep the things of this passing world. Our possessions, our money, our time, Yes, even our life. You cannot keep them. You can't hold on to them forever. So why not give them up to gain what you cannot lose? 
to gain an eternal inheritance with Jesus that can never be taken away from you. As Jesus says, whoever loses his life for me will save it and find true and everlasting life with him. For most of us, it won't involve something as dramatic as being speared to death in a jungle. But for all of us, if we choose to deny ourselves and pick up our cross daily, it will come at a cost. It could cost us comfort, money, relationships. I have a friend who their desire to honor Jesus, it recently cost them their job. But because Jesus is the king who died for us and rose again, anything we give up for him in this life will be more than worth it. In Luke 9.23, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So will you listen to him? Will you deny yourself and take up your cross daily? And will you follow him? Let me lead us in prayer to close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you've revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus. Thank you that he is our victorious Messiah who saves us from sin and death. Father, for those of us here tonight who haven't yet put their trust in Jesus, please help them to see him for who he truly is and to give their lives to him. And Father, for those of us here tonight who do trust in Jesus, help us to actually listen to him and obey him. Father, give us the strength by your spirit to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him in the path of self-sacrificial love, Fathers, in the confidence that he has given up so much for us and has secured that eternal future for us by his grace. Father, thank you for your grace that not only forgives us for the times we've failed to do that, but also for your grace that empowers us to seek to do that in the week ahead. Father, please fill us with your spirit that our lives might bear the fruit of love in concrete, everyday ways. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.